Greetings and welcome to Trauma and Social Work Podcast. You are listening to Tanya Octave, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. My goal is to provide education, resources, suggested practices, and understand more about the aspects of trauma and social work. This podcast is for you because we are all impacted by trauma. I am your host. Go grab your notepad, pen or pencil, a cup of warm tea, and let's get down to business. Disclaimer, this podcast is not intended for medical, psychological, mental health, or legal advice. You should seek out a professional for individual and specific questions regarding your overall wellness. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Welcome to episode four of Trauma and Social Work Podcast. Today we are going to talk about trauma. What is a small letter T in trauma? And what is a capital letter T in trauma? Like I suggested in episode one. What are the different types of trauma and what does a clinical diagnosis of PTSD mean? Trauma is not an uncommon experience and it impacts can be life altering. Traumatic events impact not only the individual psychological structure, but also the systems of attachment. The quality of attachment is between the infant and the parent or caregiver. So the infant and parent or caregiver attachment connection lays the foundation for how the individual will behave and react to certain situations. Additionally, it influences the individual's interaction and interpersonal relationships. The attachment relationship determines if infants will experience secure or insecure in their relationships with others and also how this helps them to understand their current feelings. Therefore, the attachment style can guide an individual's capacity to understand and tolerate life experiences, especially in terms of managing traumatic events. This is the connection between, let's say, the internal ways we understand information and the distressing experiences to our psyche. So let's talk about this small letter T. A small letter T trauma includes an event, situation, or experience that exceeds one capacity to cope. This disrupts one's emotional functioning. These events, problems, or experiences are not inherently life-threatening, but instead it impacts one's ego. Freud suggested trauma intrudes upon the ego and the ego struggles to adjust and adopt to this intrusion. The person will feel helpless and distressed. The individual often overlooks this form of trauma. These are your personal experiences. Uh, Let's say for my listening audience that you try to forget and not talk about with others. Some examples are maybe your experience with divorce, adultery, financial distress, legal issues, or relationship challenges. That's all a small letter T in trauma. Then there's this big capital letter T. A capital letter T in trauma is an event, situation, or experience that causes one's life 
and the integrity to be threatened. This person feels powerless and having little control in their life and circumstances. Most consider a capital T to be a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, going to or feeling like you're living in some sort of war, a sexual or physical assault, um, some sort of significant accident like a car accident, a airplane, train or boat accident. However, most research fails to explore with capital letter T trauma issues of racism, sexism, you know, I would say all of our isms in general, institutional forms of oppression, slavery, historical and cultural traumas and unconscious forms of traumas are also a part of that capital letter T. So what are the different types of trauma? You have something called secondary trauma and vicarious trauma. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network defines secondary trauma as an emotional duress that results when an individual hears about a first-hand traumatic experience of another. It is when the mind, body, and spirit are emotionally affected by hearing someone's trauma. Examples include when a social worker hears stories of child sexual abuse and maybe they start to zone out or become highly agitated or even overprotective of their own children. Then there's vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is similar to secondary trauma. Vicarious trauma is, one, is when one is exposed to someone's trauma over and over and over again. An example is, you know, when you have a domestic violent worker, maybe working in a shelter, begins to think relationships are all bad just because of the work that they're doing. Vicarious trauma includes individuals who work in high stressful trauma exposed environments your child abuse investigators, your prosecutors, clinicians, those in the helping professions, even those who work at animal shelters, ambulance drivers, hospital workers, and police are just a few examples who will experience this kind of vicarious trauma. Both forms of trauma lead to compassion fatigue and burnout. I have seen this in all areas of social work. In the beginning, one goes from wanting to change the world to, to do a good job and provide a helpful service to being discouraged by many system issues and feeling overwhelmed and underappreciated. I am beginning to see this more with our teachers in the educational system, especially since the onset of COVID. Teachers, police, Hospitals are often the first place that hears about child abuse. They are now our teachers in the homes through video conferencing, seeing some of the chaos that maybe they weren't exposed to previously. These are the practices that are not in place, or let me say there are no practices in place to take care of our teachers. Additionally, they will have to hold their students racialized experiences when they probably have not been able to safely and honestly address their own personal views. Teachers are forced to keep a child's emotional pain without any training, 
no clinical support, or even empathy from the school districts. The outcome will be drastic for our education system. Teachers already experience burnout, but once compassion fatigue settles into the mind, body, and, and spirit, this will directly impact my kids, your kids, our kids, and then the cycle will keep repeating itself over and over. So let's do a little transition and talk about developmental trauma. Now, this form of trauma occurs in childhood. It includes various forms of chronic abuse and neglect. There is limited to no caregiver response, which causes a significant amount of distress in the child. Research suggests developmental trauma leads to lifelong challenges such as smoking, alcohol and drug use, obesity, depression, cancer, stroke, even heart disease. There, there is more to why we have addictions, medical issues, and mental suffering in our society. If you struggle in this way, consider how aspects of developmental trauma may have impacted your own life. Now, if we think about this a little bit more, what are the needs of a child? During the earlier stages in life, they need a safe and trusting adult, safe and trusting parent or caregiver. They need a caregiver who is responsible to feed them, provide affection and attention, to give them social engagement, even to change their diapers to ensure they're getting enough sleep and stimulation. To support healthy development and growth, the caregiver must be loving, accessible, dependable, predictable, and safe. Developmental trauma is created within the home environment. When a caregiver is unavailable, developmental trauma, or what we used to call reactive attachment disorder manifest. I will see labels such as ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, PTSD, I will see learning and processing disorders, mood instability, and speech delays in my work with de developmental trauma. Neuroscience informs us how the brain changes and the way it develops before 25 years of age. Trauma events are imprinted in the brain at earlier stages of development. Even our genetics change. Our genes, 48 chromosomes, are changing to survive through the trauma, which helps us understand why traumas can be inherited. When a child experiences multiple chronic and prolonged forms of trauma, it's something referred to as complex trauma. This form of trauma is ongoing over many developmental stages. There are disruptions in the child's primary caregiver relationship for example, children involved in the, foster care, in the foster care system have experienced many traumatic events and their primary caregiver changes as the child shifts from one foster home to another. Furthermore, children are exposed to many forms of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, maltreatment, emotional abuse, the list goes on and on. This also includes community violence police violence, anything a child experiences as if they were living in an environment similar to war. 
Children who experience chronic traumas have changes in their ability to process and understand information, regulate their emotions, and place their experiences into categories to make sense out of their experience. So, can you imagine being a 10-year-old boy raised by a single parent who constantly saw fighting in the home? The young boy sees gang and community violence on the way to and from school. There are financial struggles and racialized experiences that made him feel shameful. His parents may physically hit him for not listening or losing focus or even zoning out. The boy can't focus in school and he turns inward and may use school as his escape. When you live in trauma, the mind and the body have to shut down to survive. Complex trauma is a 10-year-old boy going to war until he's 20. This is the type of damage we can only imagine. That's a lot to take in. For some, this may be triggering, thought-provoking, and bring on more curiosity. Continue to listen as these ideas on trauma will be expanded upon. Other trauma experiences are related to historical and intergenerational trauma. This includes racialized experiences, slavery, mental and physical, forcible removal from a family community, genocide, and war. However, this will be included in the episode on epigenics. So, I've talked all about different types of trauma, and I haven't even mentioned what most people know about. This is our post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It was during the 1900s when research started to look at survivors of traumatic events. Early studies looked at child abuse, Holocaust victims, war veterans, and those involved in major disasters. Without going into all the history on PTSD, what is PTSD? To get this label, one has a particular experience and meets a few symptoms. One. Your experience of a traumatic event is either direct or indirect. Two, you witness a traumatic event. Three, the traumatic event involved a close family member, even if you weren't directly impacted. Then one develops symptoms related to the traumatic event. Intrusive thoughts, avoids the event or reminders of the event, changes in their cognition, changes in their emotions or responses. Trauma is an experience we have in common. Whether we experience a small t trauma or have a clinical symptoms related to tragic events, this is our connection and part of our human experience. Continue to listen and with each episode you will learn more about trauma and social work. I will end with this. Traumatized children grow up to be traumatized adults. Ask for help. Find your voice and work through your childhood stuff. Octave 2021. Disclaimer. 
This podcast is not intended for medical, psychological, mental health, or legal advice. You should seek out a professional for individual and specific questions regarding your overall wellness. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. this podcast please share it with others like below and subscribe to my channel I will end by saying the keys to happiness are following the path towards knowing oneself ancient comedic proverb welcome to episode 5 of the trauma and social work podcast Today we are going to talk about anxiety. What are the different types of anxiety? How to notice signs of anxiety in children, adolescents, and adults. I think people, for the most part, know about anxiety. People usually associate anxiety with feelings of worry, fear, panic, or discomfort. They may have sweaty or cold hands and feet. They may have difficulty sleeping getting and staying asleep, they may struggle to relax. The body is activated and the mind is racing. It may be difficult to breathe. Your muscles may be tense and sensations of tingling or numbness. There may be experiences of butterflies in your tummy or stomach discomfort. Some feel anxiety is when you are not yourself. For me, to put it simple, anxiety is when you are focused on something that can potentially happen. This can be a thought that is bothersome to you. This can be noticed in some movement in your body. This can even be how your digestive system is reacting or being activated in some way. Anxiety is about the future. So let's take some time to talk about some different types of anxiety. There's generalized anxiety. This is the excessive worry or preoccupation with your thoughts in a variety of ways. You will feel stressed about various activities or events. You may have even attempted to control these worries. But once you feel you stopped worrying about one thing, uh, you begin to worry about something different. Generalized anxiety is experienced with physical, cognitive, and digestive symptoms. There may be restlessness, being quickly tired, challenges with thinking, forgetfulness, muscle aches, and challenges sleeping, especially for children. Children may struggle to fall or stay asleep, maybe be restless at nighttime and can even be a little grumpy in the morning. They may have unexplained sweating, nausea, diarrhea, or complain that the symptoms just may happen. In teenagers, the same symptoms occur, but the young person may also experience irritability. However, this is usually not observed by other adults. 
Generalized anxiety disorder is usually observed in children and teenagers by their performance in sports, school, peer relationships, etc. One belief is an anxious child will grow up into an anxious adult if these symptoms are not appropriately and effectively addressed. In childhood, the worries switch from school concerns to preoccupations about relationships, day-to-day -day activities, work. I think you get the point. Now, selective mutism. This is something usually not discussed as much. And this is not why or when your girlfriend asks you to clean the kitchen and you get distracted by the TV and you don't respond. Or when you tell your child to pick up his room and he's playing video games and he's quiet. Selective mutism is different. This is first diagnosed in childhood. The child is not able to speak or communicate in specific environments. They are mute in the community, in school, or at home. There are many things a trained professional will need to rule out for an accurate diagnosis of selective mutism. And it is estimated to be about 1% of the population. Adults will see that their children can communicate in one environment, such as at home, and they communicate with relative ease. But in other settings, there's no verbal or nonverbal communication, such as maybe school environments. Then there's separation anxiety. And in child and adult, in child and teenhood, we usually see separation anxiety. This is the excessive worry, fear, anxious feelings when being separated from someone else. The child is distressed when leaving home or leaving a certain person. This can be a parent, a sibling. There is excessive worry that a particular person may be harmed in some way. There is excessive worry that something terrible will happen because of this separation. Now, this child or teen may refuse to go to places or do things that could cause separation. Sometimes there's reluctance to go to sleep, to eat, to even bathe. Children will report nightmares or daydreaming about the separation. Others often notice this and the child usually will verbalize their anxieties. There can be a buildup when the separation occurs and the individual may complain about headaches, nausea, stomach pain, shaking in their body. Although this usually occurs in children, it can manifest or re-manifest in adulthood. And sometimes this happens in interpersonal relationships and connections with animals. Now there's another idea. This other idea has to do with having mixed anxiety and depressive concerns. Now, there is some debate if this is one clinical issue or if there are two clinical issues. However, there are concerns in terms of anxiety, fears about the future, and depression, fears about the past. The mixture of both are equally distressing and impacts one's life in simple ways. In childhood, there's this fear of going to school and worrying about what 
happened at school the day before. And maybe as a teenager, I am not good enough and not liked by peers, but a constant preoccupation about past events with peer relationships. In adulthood, there are these fluctuating thoughts about the future and the past. I just can't stop worrying about what is going to happen. And I keep thinking about what happened. I can't stop. Another part of anxiety is the phobias. There are many phobias about spiders, snakes, heights, dogs, lightning, fear of injections, fear of opening crowded spaces, fear of people, fear of blood or injury, fears of flying, being in enclosed and tight spaces, fears about performance. There are specific phobias. A phobia is an irrational fear or reaction. This can be internal or external. There is a deep-rooted sense of panic when the feared object is thought of or encountered. The intensity can range from annoying to debilitating. I want to clarify, this is not a means to diagnose yourself, your family members, or your co-workers. This is simply to open your eyes to some other possibilities. If you or your children may suffer in some way, always, always, always seek out a professional. Because this is just a basic understanding for the general population to listen to. I will leave with a few statements. Anxiety develops from others' risk related to genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and life events. Anxiety is the most common form of mental suffering. Anxiety is highly treatable and everyone experiences stress and anxiety at some point in their life. Welcome to episode six of the Trauma and Social Work podcast. Today we are going to talk about teenagers, one of my favorite topics. Adolescent development is often misunderstood. As an adult, we want teenagers to be compliant, have a sense of direction, and follow the rules. However, their development, at least in the US, we give them mixed messages. Adolescence is a period of becoming self-sufficient and independent. It is a time in our lives as an individual when we are allowed to explore our thoughts and beliefs separate from those of our parents and family members. Adolescents are permitted to push their boundaries with limited social and economic legal consequences. Parents are often frustrated for two reasons. One, they have their own unresolved stuff. And two, they want their teenagers to make healthy and positive choices in life that will eventually lead to financial and emotional security. The goal for most parents is to produce young adults who are contributing members of our society. I will share some information on developmental stages of adolescence and the connection to attachment theory. And then I'll talk a little bit about infancy and how it lays the foundation for adolescent development. And then I'll explore some challenges between parents and their teens. So let's talk about development in infancy. Humans are considered primate animals and remain in infancy 
longer than other mammals. Although human infants by nature are immature and helpless shortly after birth, they experience rapid growth and development over the course of a few months. By the first year, their brain develops in size and they can communicate their needs in a nonverbal way. A critical stage in early infancy development is the ability to learn and experience various arousal states. The infant is then allowed to become attentive and receptive to social and emotional stimuli. Early development such as this lays the foundation for later in life, particularly in adolescence when tensions and emotional regulations are high. If successfully accomplished in infancy, the teenager will have a strong sense of self and this will assist with their cognitive and social development. Self-regulation for an infant is largely the responsibility of the caregiver, parents who provide consistency and offer a variety of stimulation methods in response to their infant's state, mood, and interest will assist the child in developing the capacity to regulate. For example, caregivers who provide a variety of learning materials to the infant will increase their child's capacity to feel stimulated. Young children should be provided opportunities to play blocks, Legos, dolls, do crafts, music instruments, a variety. In, a different, in, a in addition, there is a body of literature on attachment theory that reviews the various ways caregivers and infants will, come, will become connected to each other. This is a basic concept placed the importance on the quality of care provided by the caregiver that leads the infant's ability to have a sense of security. So let's talk a little bit about development and attachment. There are about four accepted forms or categories of attachment. Securely attached parents are often consistent while being cooperative and sensitive to their infant's needs in feeding and playing situations. For example, when the baby cries, he or she could not reach a toy, then you will see that the infant is notably anxious. The parent will comfort the child with a nurturing smile, good eye contact, and respond by engaging the child with a desired toy. The parent would play with the child as, and the toy together. And then you may have an avoided unattached parent where non-responsive or when they, are, when they can't be or they're not responsive to the infant's needs. The baby has no effort to engage the caregiver and even ignores the caregiver by moving or turning away. For example, the mother would pick the child up and make attempts to make eye contact or play peekaboo. And the infant turns away, avoids eye contact with the caregiver. This is also observed when the caregiver arrives to pick the child from daycare. Child pays no attention to the parent and goes on their usual activities if, if the parent is not even there. Then you might have a resistant attachment, demonstrating challenges and the infant being able to be soothed or calmed and is often inconsolable for example, a parent leaves the room and the child starts to scream, ah, ah, in a high-pitched voice, kicks his or her feet, throws the toys or other objects across the room. 
These caregivers often report challenges with babysitting or leaving the child in daycare for short periods of time. A fourth observation is noted in children with disorganized, disoriented attachment. This form of attachment resulted from caregivers who are often intrusive and insensitive parents. The infant was often a victim of early childhood maltreatment or abuse. For example, a child who, let's say, was physically abused by his parents and suffered broken bones, maybe at one years of age, will feel disconnected from others. The child shows no interest in activities or others and does not engage socially or even in the environment. The child with this form of attachment is often present in a room with other adults and often goes unnoticed. Adults may sometimes assume this is an easy child because the child does not complain. This level of attachment is of particular interest to me in my work that I do with children. Most of my professional career has been directed towards children who have been abused, neglected, or in traumatized environments. In my job over the past 20 years, I have seen all levels of, of attachment from very young children to elderly, and they're still struggling with attachment issues. Teenagers raised in households where there is abuse or neglect concerns often become disorganized or disoriented from reality. In my observations, I see young people who struggle with having healthy and meaningful connections to others more than those children who were not abused or neglected. I also see they are in search for a family, someone who will love them, often ending up in other abusive, neglectful, and traumatizing situations. These levels of attachment lay the foundation in how adolescents will travel through other stages of their development. And so let's talk a little bit about sexual development. Now, I'm gonna mention Sigmund Freud, but that's just to kind of give us a basis of information. Freud was the one who at least gets credit for coming up with the psychosexual stages of development. And they usually are oral, anal, phallic, and latency. You know, Freud believed that all humans are sexual and aggressive beings and that this was a part of our standard development. In the oral stage, usually between birth to about one, the infant will explore the world through a series of gratifying and pleasurable experiences with their mouth. They'll walk or crawl around putting all kinds of objects in their mouth. They'll put their mouth on all other types of objects because that's how they're exploring their environment. And the transition into the anal stage, which is about from about one to about three, the toddler will explore the world through a series of pleasurable sensations involving their anus. This is where they learn to potty train. This can be a period of frustration and enjoyment both for the child and the parent. And then you have the phallic stage, usually about three to five years of age, the child explores their bodies through pleasures of the genitalia. For example, the toddler is learning to explore the genitalia more and can often be observed touching the genitalia in socially unacceptable or embarrassing places. I always say, I always say it's fun for adults to go ask their parents um, what was it like for me during my potty training years? 
and see what response you get um, back from your parents. During latency, which occurs about six to 11 years of age, the child learns to feel emotionally connected to others and those who are helpful to meeting their needs. The child can regulate repressed impulses from earlier stages in sexual development. And so if they weren't able to successfully master the oral, anal, or phallic stages, those can be repressed. A child learns who the adults are that can provide them a sense of safety and security. The adolescence depends on the success of the prior stages as they transition into the psychosexual stages of development. Now, adolescence. Starting maybe at about 12, Freud believed it ended about 18, new research probably says in the mid-20s. During this period, the adolescent can establish a reproductive system, and this is the last phase of sexual development. For both young men and women, there is an increase in focus energy on their genitalia area. This stage is characterized by a rise in rebelliousness against the caregivers and an increase in peer relationships. Adolescents often engage in intense love relationships and can do meaningful work, similar to mature adults. Young people are falling in love, and when love is threatened, it is experienced as the end of the world. If you can take a few moments just to reflect on your first love or loving experience, and when that experience, if that experience ended, how intense were those emotions for you? Young people have a desire to be attracted and attractable to peers, to engage and connect with peers with a level of intensity as they transition during their sexual development. So then what about cognitive development? Paget argued that there are eight stages of cognitive development. Now, I'm not gonna bore you with going through all eight stages of cognitive development. But in childhood, the child is learning to think, to understand objects, the meaning of objects, and to interpret their environment. In adolescence, self-identity occurs. This stage is a period in a young person's life where they can explore aspects of who they are in relationship to themselves and to others. This self-centeredness experience is defined as adolescent egocentrism. It is all about me. Adolescents feel that no one can understand them. At times, they feel that their thoughts, feelings, experiences are not universal, but are unique to their experience. And this leaves them feeling lonely and isolated. Adolescents also engage in more at-risk behaviors, such as unprotected sex, substance use, and participate in thrill-seeking situations. There is a belief that they can achieve great success in their talents if their ideas are supported by securely attached and healthy adults. In addition, they may feel that their parents are inadequate or even inferior to them. Many teens feel that they are the center of attraction and others are always talking and thinking about them. It is mostly during this period when parents bring their teens in for counseling due to challenges, although some of the complaints are related to normal cognitive, sexual, and emotional development. 
Teens are more independent and are able to verbalize their sense of self, causing the potential concerns for the parents. Now, that being said, if you have concerns as a healthy adult in a teen's life, you should seek out professional help. Just because a teenager is engaged in normal developmental activities, they could still be under distress. Working with the profession can help hold a holding environment for an adolescent so that the intensity and severity of concerns are supported. So parents, adolescents are typically brought into counseling for, because of their parents' frustrations. Parents also seek out support because their loved one is hurting and maybe you've tried different things to alleviate their pain, but nothing seems to work. In relationship to adolescent development, focus should be on the importance of independence. They should be able to, you should be able to give them choices in their life. For example, a parent may suggest, I'm a little worried about you and I think you could try counseling for a few weeks. You can consider maybe talking to someone at school, maybe talking to someone after school or on the weekends or even someone online. Another suggestion may be, I am worried and it would make me feel better if you had a place where you could talk privately and safely to an adult who has more knowledge than I do in this area. That type of statement actually puts the focus on you as a parent not knowing what to do and allowing the teenager to have choices about talking with an expert. Now, if a parent has minimal concerns but feels their child is just under some stressors, some things you can consider. I notice you are under more stress these days. Maybe you can try doing a sport having some friends come over to visit, maybe an equestrian program. These are just some suggested ways to communicate your concerns and allowing our young people so that they feel that they're having choices in their lives. Since at times the therapeutic environment often mimics real life situations, it can be a safe place for a young person to explore feelings, ideas, experiences with little judgment. It is a place where a healthy adult can hold their anxieties. Clinicians are not parents, so they are not bound by those responsibilities. Clinicians are not peers, so they are not connected with teenagers in the same way. Clinicians can have a holding space for all their stuff, the stuff that is not shared with parents or peers. Another idea to consider is the parents' unresolved issues from their adolescent period may start to arise. A parent may have regrets of things they should have done, and this reflected on maybe their parenting choices or how they obsessed about their child at times. Parents also address all the negative feedback and ridicule that they get from other family members Everyone tends to have an opinion about what's wrong with a young person and what a mom or dad should do differently. I am often told adults forget all the bad choices that they made when they were young. 
they forget what it was like to be young. There is no doubt in my mind that most parents want the best for their children, but there are external and internal factors that are at play. I will leave this by saying a quote from my son in 2012, a 10th grader in high school. If you want a relationship with me, then talk to me about other things, not just my grades.